Welcome to the podcast of Tech.eu, Europe's premier technology industry information portal and market intelligence platform. This is our episode number 114, released on April 17th, 2019. Today we are going to talk about the UK regulating the big tech, about telehealth startups, a magical May for tech events about Spotify, and much more. We are also going to include an interview with Jess Butcher, who co-founded Blipper and is currently working on her new project called Tick. I am your host, Andre Degler, joined today by our research lead, Natalie Novik. Hey, Natalie, how's it going? Hi, Andre. It's going great. How's your week going? Yeah, it's going just fine. It's going very similarly to the uh, GIF video that we were just uh, watching with you before we started uh, recording. Now, I definitely have to link to it in the in the show notes, but it basically uh, shows a person wearing a um, sort of a smiley uh, costume that uh, fell on the ground and could not get up for one minute and 15 seconds. This is more or less how I feel right now with work. How about yourself? Yeah, that's a pretty magical video. This giant emoji just kind of can't surface from the ground. It's amazing. So how was the week for the companies then? What was the biggest deal? The biggest deal last week went to Sweden, where Klarna has raised just over 1 billion Swedish kroner, which is about 100 million euros. And this investment round was led by a number of their existing investors, including Sequoia and Permia. So congratulations to them. Indeed. Yeah, 1 billion kroner sounds much better than just 100 million euros. <laughs> yeah, I agree, definitely. Right, so going forward to the stories and interviews uh, of the week, I wanted to talk about something that's been around in the news, I think, for most of the past week and this week as well. And this is uh, uh, something coming from the UK. And uh, what I titled it with in our internal uh, document is that is the with a quote, uh, from the UK's culture secretary, Jeremy Wright, who said that the era of self-regulation for online companies is over. So what happened? Uh, it kind of seems like the UK is actually increasingly getting ahead of the rest uh, of Europe in regulating the big tech companies, or at least in devising new ways of regulating them. And recently, you, Natalie, praised uh, the report that dug uh, deep into how Facebook operates, also issued in the UK. But this time, uh, the Department for Digital Culture, Media and Sports, uh, aka DCMS in the UK, proposed a way to tackle what it calls on Online harms. So the harms uh, are defined in a very, very broad way in this proposal. So the proposal itself is actually a white paper uh, that is 102 pages long, which I admittedly did not go uh, through in full. Uh, but generally, it lists three different types of the online harms that uh, have to be tackled. The first 13 of these harms uh, are uh, called uh, the harms with a clear definition. And these include uh, terrorist content and uh, hate crime and incitement of violence and the child sexual exploitation and abuse, and so on and so forth. Now, the second list is called uh, harms with a less clear definition, and those include, uh, for example, disinformation and intimidation and advocacy of uh, self-harm. And the third list in that paper 
is the shortest one and it's titled Underage Exposure to Legal Content. And uh, this one is all about uh, children accessing pornography and inappropriate materials, which include uh, under 13s using social media, under 18s using dating apps, and what's really interesting, what's called excessive screen time. So excessive screen time is now an online harm officially, according to uh, the UK's uh, DCMS and uh, something that has to be uh, tackled by a regulation. So how do the authors actually suggest to uh, tackle all these issues? As per the BBC's summary, uh, the paper suggests uh, that establishing an independent regulator that can write a code of practice for social networks and internet companies is something that uh, uh, should be done. So the regulator uh, would also be given certain enforcement powers, obviously, and those would include the ability to fine companies or even certain executives within those companies if they fail to block access to the harmful content. It is not yet decided, actually, whether the regulator will be, will be a new entity, because it is actually possible that one of the existing governmental watchdogs, like Ofcom, will just get uh, these additional powers and responsibilities. And that's, I have to say, that's a lot uh, to take on, so I'm not really sure how that's going to work. Now, summing things up, the UK's culture secretary, Jeremy Wright, uh, said, uh, the, uh, said the thing that I quoted at the beginning. Uh, the quote begins, The era of self-regulation for online companies is over. Voluntary actions from industry to tackle online harms have not been applied consistently or gone far enough. The quote ends. He also said, uh, by the way, that the fines uh, for the companies who fail to comply with the new regulations, when and if they become law, of course, can be comparable to those under GDPR. And that uh, would be 4% of uh, annual turnover of the company fined. And if we apply this uh, number to Google or to Facebook, we're talking about billions of dollars. So this is going to be a pretty big deal if that uh, uh, comes in force. Now, the proposed regulation is now undergoing the public consultation stage in the UK, and uh, this will last until the 1st of July. That is a 12-week uh, period uh, in which, uh, as far as I understand, uh, everyone can uh, sort of uh, voice their concerns or uh, say what they think. And I, I really did like the comment uh, made by the BBC's uh, Rory Caitlin Jones, uh, who is also the host of the BBC Tech 10 podcast. I can really recommend this one. And his quote uh, sounds like this. The quote begins, The government now plans to consult on its proposals. It may yet find that its twin aims of making the UK both the safest place in the world online and the best to start a digital business are mutually incompatible. The quote ends. So I also see that it's going to be very, very tricky to balance uh, tackling online harms uh, with uh, preserving the actual freedom of speech online. And the hardest part here, of course, is that quite a bit of content that's listed in the paper is not actually, strictly speaking, illegal. So policing it is going to be much more nuanced uh, than just blocking the stuff that shouldn't be online anyway. And that's being uh, normally blocked by many platforms right now. There is one more important thing that I wanted to mention. I was thinking, um, and uh, a lot of other people online voiced a similar uh, opinion, uh, that this regulation can actually be beneficial uh, for big tech companies like Facebook, but deadly for its smaller competitors. And this is uh, very similar to the way that the copyright directive may work, which we discussed uh, in this podcast uh, earlier repeatedly. Uh, simply speaking, Facebook, Google, Apple, Twitter, all these different platforms, they all have the resources needed to comply with this proposed regulation. Smaller companies don't. 
So it's a double-edged sword, and as much as I do hope that uh, there is a way to uh, make things work uh, for everyone and uh, find uh, this uh, balance, I am afraid that soon enough the internet will become much less of a free place that uh, we are used to, and a lot of regulation is going to be introduced within the next uh, few years. Natalie, what, uh, what do you think about all this? You're actually living in the UK, so you must have some interesting take. <laughs> Yeah, and you know, I I welcome that they're that they're thinking about these things and that they are moving faster than the EU in terms of trying to identify what these harms could be and really trying to put a name to what they are. But it also is a little bit worrying about the impact potentially to smaller companies and to startups that we spend so much time uh, working with um, at Tech.eu. So. Anything that increases kind of the barrier for entry for companies to to offer products and services in this market, I think is something that we need to to um, really get a handle on about what kind of negative externalities there might be there. But what do you think makes sense here? Do you think it makes sense to make them exempt of uh, certain regulations? Because that's also a uh, slippery slope. Yeah, it definitely is. And also kind of how are they going to enforce these sorts of regulations? I think that a number of these things are will be really tricky about kind of screen time is potentially something that's negative harm. How do we determine how much is too much? How do we kind of identify which is a harmful screen time and which is actually okay I think that's there's still some things to work out. I haven't been through the entire report either, but um, as as you mentioned, I am very appreciative of kind of a lot of their their outputs um, by by that um, institution. So we'll have to see. I'm I'm not sure how it turned out. Actually, I think there is already sort of an explanation or clarification on uh, what the excessive screen time uh, would be, because this week I think there was another document about uh, banning the dark patterns on uh, different platforms, and those patterns basically include the one that just keep you doing whatever you're doing. So I'm not really sure how exactly it works, but I think that the new document is also there and I'm going to go through it uh, this week. Yeah, and it's interesting for for gamers, for example. Like when the new Red Dead Redemption came out, (laughs) I think I spent some days, maybe eight or 10 hours a day on that game. Is that excessive screen time? Definitely. But was it harmful? I don't know. So it'd be interesting to see how how they try to to regulate that. I I'm here in Edinburgh, kind of home of Rockstar North, where where this was produced and developed. So would be really interested to see how how that comes out. How whether it whether it's famous. harmful or not, we probably should ask uh, the uh, people and uh, non-human creatures cohabiting the space <laughs> that you are living in. <laughs> True. Anyway, yeah, I'm also all for excessive uh, screen time with uh, interest in games and, uh, for, and for example, certain uh, series like Game of Thrones, which we all watched just yesterday. Did you? No, no, I didn't. I have to wait till the entire series is done and then I can start at the beginning because I'm kind of a completionist when it comes to series. I need to know what happens at the end. So I'll just wait till it's all done and I'll go through all of them. How do you avoid spoilers? That's my main uh, fear. I've I've been pretty good. I really don't know anything. I might be the only person on planet Earth, but I really don't know a whole lot about what actually is happening in the Game of Thrones. 
um, and I've been pretty good at avoiding it. Okay. But when it's all done, I'll watch them all in order. That's interesting. So please try How about to be excessive careful. Screen time. Please try to be careful not to spoil uh, the series for Natalie. Now, what did you want to talk about today, anyway? Yeah. So last week we learned that the French telemedicine provider Care, so that's Care as in Q A R E, raised a new investment round of about twenty million euros. And I thought it'd be a great opportunity to look into the med tech and telemedicine space in Europe. And I also wanted to talk about this space because next month, tech.eu is going to go on a deep dive into digital health. And it's a really exciting space, and I'm really looking forward to digging into it a bit more. Why it's so exciting is that the internet has really given consumers greater access to healthcare information than ever before. And patients are taking a more active role in their medical decisions, maybe rightly or wrongly. But in the U.S., with when you have a very fragmented healthcare system with very uneven access for people, direct-to-consumer medicine has exploded. And startups have, there's so many of them that are reaching multi-billion dollar valuations in all aspects of direct-to-consumer health. But you also see this trend happening in Europe as well, despite us having a greater access to medical care largely than we do in the United States. Patients here are also beginning to build kind of a more consumer relationship to medicine. And the med tech space in Europe is really exciting. And kind of due to regulations and national laws, it often forces companies to really specialize in their home markets first before trying to scale. And it's also interesting because medicine and healthcare is such a personal thing. So it means you're finding really diverse companies and different European countries that are each coming up in these in these home markets with different offerings. And it's really exciting to see which one of them will take off and conquer Europe. So in the on-demand medical space, there's a few different archetypes that I've been following. First, you have services that connect you to visit a local doctor. So kind of doctor booking apps, and there's a lot of them. But you have things like Doctorly in the UK, Doctor Leave in France, Doctor Anytime, which was one of the first in this space. And they were founded in Greece in 2012, and they have since scaled to Belgium in 2016, and then Cyprus in 2017. Really cool company with a very interesting founder. But in Spain, you have companies like Open Salud and eSalud. And in March, Dr. Lee, the French doctor appointment booking app, reached a unicorn valuation of $1.1 billion, thanks to 150 million euro growth equity round which was led by General Atlantic. So there's clearly a lot of potential in this space to do it right. But the next segment of innovation in the space cuts out the doctor's office directly, giving you doctor on demand via video services, through usually through your smartphone. And it's in this space where we find care that I mentioned earlier. Care is available in France and for those abroad looking to connect with French doctors. And I've actually seen some really glowing reviews of care from some in the French community in London who are looking for something a little bit different than what the British health system offers. And for these French patients, care gives them a really valuable alternative. And it's ultimately this personalized care and experience is that what kind of health and med tech is all about. 
But just as in France, in the UK, there are a number of companies operating in this space. Most notably, we have Push Doctor, which is based in Manchester, and Babylon Health. And if you've spent any time on the London Tube, you'll probably have been blind to not see Babylon Health. They've, which in February, announced that they would be on the lookout for over $400 million in new financing. They were founded in 2013 and have raised a considerable amount of money. And according to the Financial Times, last year they spent more than $75 million in their expansion and have worked with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation to expand mobile doctors to places like Rwanda. But what's really unique is that it's in Spain where telemedicine has really exploded. And the country's medical service was one of the first to embrace telemedicine. And so you see lots of diversity and opportunity in this space, which indicates some of the potential here continent-wide. So you have companies like Medico, where doctors are available by chatbot, to EverHealth, which offers telemedicine services for businesses and schools. Still more are Elmacare and Medictor, who I remember seeing in the finals of South Summit back in 2017. But who's going to take this telemedicine across Europe? Well, one of the contenders that's made the biggest splash so far is called NotCare, K-N-O-K. They were founded in Portugal, and they now operate in the UK, Portugal, Spain, and Italy. But with the growing amount of telemedicine in Europe, not all are happy about it. And this tends to come from kind of traditional places. So in the UK, online consultations with doctors are legal, but they're opposed by the British Medical Association. And you see similar kind of sentiments elsewhere. But there are a few reasons for this. But one of the reasons is that, well, doctors that are available over remote video or chat are still a bit too remote. But for every problem, there's always a European startup with a solution. And that's where a French medtech company, H4D, comes in. They built a fully equipped telemedicine cabin called the Consult Station that patients can enter and be examined by virtual doctors from afar. If it sounds like something out of the future, well, it is. And in technology, that's really what we're here for, right? So currently, the Consult Station can be found all over France and elsewhere in Europe, too, such as in Italy. Mostly they're used by corporate clients, but there are ambitions to get these rolled out more broadly. And it's solutions like these that really have the opportunity to get high quality healthcare to more people than ever before. So these examples are just a taste of some of the exciting innovation in the space and something we will be covering more in depth in our MedTech Month in May. And when we look at the statistics on investment in this space, we see that MedTech is one of the verticals that's right behind fintech that garners the most investment across European tech. So there's tons of opportunity here, and it's a really exciting space to watch. Okay, whoever is going to France next has to go and test those uh, consult uh, cabins. I do hope that they don't feature anything like, uh, you know, those remotely controlled manipulators. They would just they would just grab you and <laughs> well, they turn do you have a, some aspects inside these consultations for kind of these virtual doctors to take kind of diagnostic tests of your body. Um, really kind of amazing. And what they really would love to do is kind of get these to be in all different types of markets and kind of make them very predominant. Um, seen a couple of videos about what they do. So cool. Now, I do agree that generally uh, telehealth and telemedicine are probably the future of the industry. 
at least for the like first line uh, consultation. So whatever you go uh, to your uh, GP for. But also what I also think about is that it's a huge uh, cybersecurity risk. And totally. uh, like the first question that you always have to ask any startup working in this industry is how do you protect the data and how do you make sure that this data cannot be uh, used by uh, any malicious actors? Definitely. That is a huge concern and something that I think all of the companies working in this space really are very concerned about. But every day, it seems like there is a new different breach. And it's something that that really kind of underlines the importance of developing a strong cybersecurity alongside these technologies. Yeah, indeed. Until it's not there, I maybe just go to my GP next door and talk to talk to a human while I, while I still can. <laughs> right, let's move on uh, through our today's agenda. And now we have a great uh, interview for you. This is a conversation with uh, Jess Butcher, uh, co-founder of the startup Tick. We will be back in a few minutes. Let's all listen to this one together. Robin Walters, I'm here in London, sitting down with Jess Butcher, uh, who's one of the co-founders uh, behind Tick, an up-and-coming uh, startup here in London but also with a very interesting background. So can you maybe uh, share something about that first? Sure. So tech entrepreneur by background, I guess serial is the hateful word that many would use these days. So my last business was called Blipper, a big mobile augmented reality pioneering platform uh, that we scaled very, very rapidly from 2011 to last year. But I've I moved out of that business a couple of years ago to pursue more portfolio interest around working with startups and accelerator programs, some angel investing and, and more speaking and evangelism around the causes I love, which is how I came across my current co-founders and jumped straight back into the startup game again. Great. Yes, you met your co-founders actually while mentoring at uh, Zinc, uh, based in London here as well. Uh, the company is called Tick. Uh, so maybe can you share a little bit how you met uh, your co-founders first? Sure. So yeah, I was a fellow there helping to advise the businesses as they were emerging from this pre-idea uh, accelerator program individuals um, before they've come up with the idea. And I loved working with Franz and Cedric. They had this really big vision around harnessing micro video, the format that is so uh, powerfully used within Instagram stories, within Snap. Uh, and on other platforms, how could we use this really great on-the-go creation habit to capture knowledge? How could we teach people how to do anything in less than a minute? That was the proposition in a nutshell. And the more we started to brainstorm that together, we realized that there are a number of different trends happening at the time that we could really take advantage of. We could move people from this somewhat narcissistic behavior that was starting to emerge in social media, which is all about me, who I am, my ego, what I look like, what I'm great at, to actually, well, what have you got to share with the world? What about what you are good at can inform and empower and give knowledge to other people? Um, so the more we worked on that, uh, we realized that there was a, a really interesting timing opportunity to build a really altruistic user-generated content, mobile-first video platform that t takes that step-by-step -step format purely for education. And I guess the button that it really ticked for me as one of these tech entrepreneurs that had st been starting to feel this discomfort with the online addictions and the negative behaviors that I was seeing online was that this was a platform that would get you offline. 
So we use technology to empower our offline lives by injecting the answer to the question they had, injecting the knowledge and the inspiration in less than a minute so that they could do, create, play, build, um, you know, and, and, and do together. And that was really what set it alight for me and why I then decided to throw all my other interests out the window and jump back into the startup game. Great. Well, it's, it's sort of counterintuitive. So you make it the product non-sticky. You want people to actually leave once they see the videos. Uh, but without, uh, obviously, our listeners can't see the app. You just showed it to me. Um, how would you describe what it looks and feels like? Yeah. So it's a video. It's a micro video platform. So you can download the app and it's a creator tool, first and foremost. So it's the ability to either capture video and uh, images on the go, to weave them together, to talk people through the steps of constructing, building, creating, cooking, playing, whatever it is uh, that the action is. Very, very simple. So the idea is that anybody can pick this up and use it. If they can use the camera on their device, uh, then they can create a tech story. Um, And you can also, by the way, upload images and videos that are within your role already. And then it's, of course, a viewing platform as well to be able to scroll and search either by specific question or for inspiration within the different verticals that we cover, whether that be food or exercise or life hacks or DIY or sport. Um, you know, those categories are growing all the time. Um, one thing I would add, though, is what's different about Tick, unlike a social media platform, is that we're an open platform. So all of our content lives and breathes and is accessible and discoverable on the web. And because of the text labels that are within every step of our videos, it means they are incredibly search engine optimizable and obviously a much more satisfying and fulfilling way for people to get their answer when when searching on a mobile than a 40-minute YouTube video is that is obviously high in bandwidth, long, heavy. The answer will be buried somewhere in the middle of that video. So when you find a tick story on your search results, you know that you've got that, aha, there it is. That's how I bleed my radiator or well, that's how I drill that hole or, or cook that trifle. Um, and you know that that's the one minute knowledge injection that you're actually searching for. Great. Um, apart from making it very search and friendly because you were the CMO at Blipar, so you, you I guess, go to market strategy is a big part of your role now. Uh, how do you plan to introduce, let's say, a million users to Tick in the next few months, years? Good question. If I knew all the answers to that, um, I'm sure we would be part, halfway on that mission. It's obviously, as you'd expect, uh, a multiple uh, strategy approach. But ultimately, our creators will do this for us. Um, you know, we hope that they will be sharing their knowledge and want to share that knowledge. This is a platform that works very, very well with the other social media platforms. And of course, search engines will drive, we hope, the more content we get, the more visibility our channel will get for delivering that answer as quickly as it is and and to present to people an opportunity for them to create their own knowledge and content within that way. We also have some really interesting partnerships in the pipeline. So people that feel very like-minded about building a more healthy, creative, shorter form web squeezed of the flab. Uh, they're working with us. There are influencers lined up to start talking about what we're doing that, you know, have missions uh, that are aligned. So, you know, we're, we're, we're looking at a number of different strategies for doing that, but we just need people creating because then they will share the content and other people will see it. Great. Um, you just raised around the funding, I believe. Can you talk about that a little bit as well? Sure. So we've done a pre-seed um, with um, uh, a number of the leading uh, investors in Europe. Those include uh, Seedcamp, Extension, 
um, uh, some very important and special angels who have a lot of experience within our space um, and uh, another couple of funds. So we have runway. So we're rolling the dice now and getting it out there. And uh, I'm sure we'll be talking to more investors in due course. Always open to those conversations. <laughs> Great. Well, it'll be interesting to watch uh, from our perspective as well. Um, I have to ask because I'm in London and it, the Brexit was supposed to have happened. Um, it's still going to happen one way or another. Uh, but how do you think it will affect um, you as a startup, but also the London tech scene in general? Do you know what? I'm an optimist. And I think, uh, you know, of all the industries that may be affected by Brexit, tech is not on the top, is nowhere near the top of that list. We are a very international um, industry. We are not restricted by borders in the way that other industries with physical products do. Uh, we've already been reassured on the availability of talent um, that that won't be a, a challenge. So, you know, I, 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 I'm getting on with building my business and I don't feel that we are in any way constrained or limited by what may or may not happen in that respect. So listen to that. Optimism is not often you hear that around Brexit. Fantastic. Fantastic to hear. Um, maybe final question more broadly about the, the London UK tech scene. Um, you have a view on it because you've been involved for a while. Um, do you like the way the, where it's heading? Oh, it's, it's such a different experience doing a startup now from doing one eight years ago um, where, you know, there weren't resources, there weren't as many open doors and people sharing knowledge and insight and helping you come up that learning curve. It's everywhere now. It could be that I'm sat here right now in the middle of Shoreditch where, you know, there will be 12 events going on tonight of relevance to my business in some way within a half mile radius of here. Uh, but that's what's changed the um the the optimism around what is possible but also this new culture around mentoring and sharing and free knowledge exchange is everywhere and there's a there's a lot more money um and that is great for the scene and the more we can keep the talent of scale ups and growth and all the success stories that have happened over recent years in london training the next generation uh the better because I want to see British technology companies raising their ambitions still further. There, there remains, I think, some complacency around, you know, the sort of $100 million exit, you know, is the entrepreneur that then gets touted around as, you know, and they have so much to share, there's no question. But where are the billion-dollar exits and, and uh, all, you know, the, the float, floats, actually, that's what I want to see, mm. not... Uh, British and European tech businesses selling out to the big US guys. I want us to have a FTSE 250 of technology companies, not manufacturing companies that build infrastructure or pull things out the ground. And there's a marked difference between what we see here in the UK in our top uh, businesses by market cap than, than what you see in Asia or, or the States, which is a shame. We need to change that. Yeah, that's a great answer. I think we can all agree. And it's, uh, I like to hear that a lot. Um, fantastic. Jess, thank you so much for your time and all the best with tech. Thank you very much. Hello, welcome back to the podcast of Tech.eu, episode number 114, released on April 17th, 2019. We are back, uh, just listened to this uh, great uh, interview with uh, Jess Butcher, and now it is time to talk about events and uh, the great and busy May that's uh, coming our ways. So Natalie, what should we expect yeah, so I know we're only in kind of mid-April right now, but May is a huge month for tech events. So this week, I thought it'd be the right time to start thinking about your calendar and all the event inspiration that's to come. So I'm just going to do a rundown of some of the key events for the first half of next month. 
just to get you thinking about what's happening in Europe and where you might want to spend your time. First, we have the EU Startup Summit, which is taking place in Barcelona on May 2nd. And our esteemed colleague, Robin, will be there doing a few panels. And they've got a great speaker lineup. So if you're in town, lovely Barcelona, especially that time of year, definitely come and say hi to Robin. Next, you want to head to Milan for Seeds and Chips, which is taking place from May 6th to 9th, which is one of the leading food innovation summits. And if you're into food tech, you definitely want to be there. And Alec Baldwin will also be speaking there. Okay. (laughs) Uh, but That's puzzling. Right. And two days after that, on the 8th, it's InfoShare in Gdansk, Poland. InfoShare is the biggest tech conference in the CE. So you definitely want to check that one out. Then, just following that, we're heading to Amsterdam for the next web. And if you're going, be sure to say hi to Andre. Also, at the same time as the next web, there's always the wonderful Pioneers 19 in Vienna, and that's where you'll find me. We're still not done. And just after that, from May 16th to 18th, is VivaTech in Paris. Tech.eu will be on board, of course, and Robin will be there in attendance, launching something very special from us. So make sure you check that out. Also at the same time, there's Latitude 59 in Tallinn, Estonia. And if you're up in the Baltics, I'll see you there. So lots of big choices for next month. That's only halfway done. And May's such a great month to connect with the community and be part of what's happening in Europe. Next week, we'll do the rundown of the second half of May, where there's lots more great events going down. So if you're looking for some more things to do this month or next month, do check out the events section of our website. And if you have a suggestion to add, please let us know at the link in the show notes. Yeah, exactly. If you know about any more conferences happening in May, (laughs) let us know because we definitely don't have enough. I like sometimes I really don't understand why why this month has become so popular with conference organizers. What's happening? I'm not sure. And April is kind of a light month because this month in April, for a lot of countries, it's Easter. It's not everywhere, um, but for many countries, it's Easter. And I think that's part of the reason there's not a whole lot happening. So it kind of people are pushing things um, before they want to get it in before the summer. So that's why May turns into really yeah. this smorgasbord of different sorts of things to do. Yeah, I mean, it just it's also sort of counterproductive because we end up with so many things happening either at the same time exactly or really too close to each other so that you cannot go everywhere you would normally uh, want to. Right. And it really forces you, especially if you're a founder or you're working on a tech team, to really prioritize what you want to get out of a conference and what kind of value it has for you. And of course, all of these events have so many different amenities and resources that kind of it, choosing them can, can be difficult. It also encourages conference organizers to really kind of be clear about their value and um, differentiate themselves from the pack. So it kind of is is a, a kind of a buyer's market in some respects when you have lots of events going on. So I love seeing that diversity in this space because the more different types of things you have, the more likely you'll find something that's of real value to you. Yeah, absolutely. And also, it's uh, it's not only for attend- attendees uh, this way, but it's also for the speakers, I think, because this, uh, all these events uh, generally compete uh, for, uh, for speakers in many ways uh, in uh, similar industries. And uh, I think you can uh, sort of see who comes where, and this might also define sort of specialization for certain conferences in the future. 
Right. And I think it's May is a huge month. And then kind of September, October time, it also gets really crazy. And those are kind of the two points of the year where it just all cylinders. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, I'm very much looking forward to that. Let's move on to the recommendation part. I have not uh, uh, gotten anything to recommend this time. So Natalie, you will have to save the day and uh, give us something really good. I do have something really good, and it's called How Spotify Saved the Music Industry, but not necessarily musicians. Okay, so my recommendation this week is a podcast episode from Freakonomics, which is one of my favorite podcasts. Um, And it it includes such a great interview with Daniel Eck, which is Spotify's founder. And what's great about it is it goes into his story. And he has this really great entrepreneurial journey. And while the podcast itself kind of looks into the economic side of Spotify's business and Spotify's impact on the music industry, what was really intriguing for me was how X spoke about his motivations behind entrepreneurship and how sometimes he questioned if he was doing the right thing. And I think it's something that a lot of people can empathize with, especially kind of looking at Spotify as such a European success story. It's very humanizing to see the founder kind of confronting some of these challenges and kind of personal ideals of, you know, is this really what I should be doing? And he talks very movingly about some examples from his journey in entrepreneurship. He started building companies at a very young age, and he's continually questioning what he's doing. And it kind of encourages him to kind of build the company in certain directions. But he makes this really enlightening statement, which I'll quote here. And it says, if I weren't doing this, meaning Spotify, I would probably be doing something in healthcare. And it's a weird relevation. If you asked me 10 years ago, I wouldn't have said that. But right now, it's like I came to that realization because people always said, oh, Spotify is so amazing. My response was always, well, it's not saving lives, but it's good, end quote. So I think it really kind of speaks to this kind of somewhat entrepreneurial dilemma of having kind of a great product, but always continuing to strive for something more. And I think he is such a creative founder and he's taking the company in very interesting ways. And it'll be very interesting to see kind of where he decides to go with it. The interview is very enlightening. And he also talks about what music he's listening to right now. And it might surprise you. So I encourage you to have a listen to that podcast. And if you don't want to listen, you can read the transcript. But it's a really great episode to listen to. And very high production value, as always, from Stephen Dubner at Freakonomics. And I really encourage you to check that out. Funny enough, I just checked my uh, podcast player and this episode is actually next in my uh, play queue. Great. So I will certainly get to it. It's like it's an hour long. Yeah, yeah. And it's a long conversation. Very well researched. And the interview is very enlightening and very real and do a really great job. Speaking of long episodes, Natalie, do you listen to podcasts uh, with uh, normal speed or, uh, or you speed them up? I listen to them with normal speed. I don't know these crazy people like you, Andre, that speed them up. Oh, I'm not crazy. I'm doing just like maybe up to 1.5 times, uh, but there are people who do like uh, three times or four times. So I I'm, can I'm, I'm totally not crazy. videos, but not podcasts. <laughs> Interesting. I almost never speed up YouTube videos. It looks strange. <laughs> <laughs> 
Anyway, if you do something funny with the speed of uh, our podcast or any other podcast, let us know. And uh, definitely do uh, listen to this episode of Freakonomics uh, with Daniel Eck. As for our podcast, it is time to wrap it up for today. Thanks a lot uh, for tuning in. Thanks a lot for listening. I do hope you enjoyed it. If you are not a subscriber yet, subscribe today on your favorite podcast app. If you are listening on iTunes, please take a minute to leave us a review because this will help others uh, find the show easier. Now, tell a friend or colleague about the podcast uh, if that's relevant for them and follow our updates on Twitter at tech underscore EU. Please also feel free to email us with any questions, suggestions and opinions at andri at tech.eu and natalie at tech.eu. Natalie, thank you so much for joining today. Pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much, Andre, and thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks, everyone. Enjoy the rest of your week, and we're going to talk to you again next Wednesday. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.